how I fun how I view the Psalms. Okay. Well, um, so here we are. Uh, this is night four, I believe, uh, on our, our series on how to study the Bible. Uh, we have covered um, the difference between exegesis and hermeneutics. We've applied that uh, to the epistles. Uh, Wayne then um, talked about the Psalms specifically, and probably, I don't know how much he kind of stuck to that structure uh, that I had been using the, the previous week. I'm not entirely sure since you just mentioned to me that you hadn't recorded it. So, uh, But we're going to go back to that structure where we kind of divide between what does it look like to exegete this, uh, th- this type of literature found in the Bible and what does it mean, what hermeneutical principles. And that's kind of what we did is we went through different types of Psalms and then identified them in, in their categories. Okay. What set them apart. Great. So... Uh, when we start getting into these other um, these other literary genres that you'll find in Scripture, uh, you'll find that each of these evenings that we come together will spend probably a little bit less time at what the exegetical process looks like because you'll find that that's pretty similar um, once you've learned the basic principles of exegesis, the principles of reading, 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 rereading, finding the um, the different movements and the ideas that are in there and kind of creating a structure that's built upon that. And we'll again reference that um, this evening. Um, but the goal really is to maybe spend a little bit more of our time, since we have a shorter time together, a little bit more of our time kind of on some of the interpretational issues that might pop up and what tools we can use to try to face those interpretational issues through that hermeneutical process. So tonight, we're going to focus on um, historical narrative, and we're going to throw in the book of Acts. And the reason why I'm throwing that in is that Acts is the only New Testament book that, um, that we're going to focus on in terms of historical narrative. Now, that kind of is different from the Gospels. I'm going to give the Gospels kind of their own week, primarily because um, there's nothing quite like the Gospels in Scripture, in that uh, the rest of Scripture uh, is focused on telling a story in some way, shape, or form. Uh, when it comes to narratives. The Gospels are, are somewhat unique in the way in which they tell those stories. So um, when I say historical narrative, we are going to focus on Acts, but as you have all, I should have stopped you a moment ago, as you've all turned to Acts, um, the back of your sheet is where we'll start talking about Acts. Beforehand, um, we will actually talk about historical narrative as it shows up in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament a, a substantial portion of the Old Testament is, uh, is historical narrative. So what does that look like? Um, essentially, in the, in the simplest form, point one here, the Old Testament narrative is the stories of the people of Yahweh as it's written down. Um, this is the people of Yahweh, how God made for himself a people and what he then did with them. Do we have a mouse that has joined no, our group as well? Or is, uh, or is that a smoke detector right above us? No, it's right Someone's there. I, I thought it was just something on the table. It's got, a, it's got a battery. We'll see what happens. If it drives us all mad, we'll be okay. I think it's the table. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll try to ignore it the best we can. <laughs> um, so that's, that's basically the, the main thing that I mean when we say Old Testament narrative. And there are three levels, stop it, Wayne, three levels of <laughs> Old Testament narrative. Well, I, I'm not going to blame a woman. <laughs> I learned that lesson a long time ago. Yeah. yeah, and see how well that went for him. <laughs> there are really three levels of Old Testament narrative. Um, and, and I want to break them down here. Uh, Jesse has... Uh, made mention of this, I think, probably two or three weeks ago as he was talking through Ruth. Um, but there is the, the top or the highest level here that we're going to refer to as the meta-narrative, the meta-narrative. And by meta-narrative, you want to just copy on my sheet? Yeah, you can. Feel free. Cheating. Well, just write, just write narrative, but then write meta in front of it, M-E-T-A in front of it. And basically, that's, that's the big story that's happening all through the stories. And Jesse pointed out what I think is probably the most helpful and simple way of understanding what's the biggest story. If you were to look at the whole of the, uh, of the Bible, what is the story that God's telling us? Essentially, the, main, the, the meta-narrative is the redemption of Yahweh's people and how that affects us all, the redemption of Yahweh's people. 
Uh, and that story extends from the first page all the way through the last page and beyond, in a sense. But then when we're talking about Old Testament narrative, there's kind of the next level down. After we understand the meta-narrative, the meta-narrative is being told in two levels of narrative. The level B here is the story of Israel, the story of Israel. And this is the story of Yahweh's work through the Hebrew people, right? How he, he pulled Abraham from another, another culture and made the people of Israel out of his lineage and the story that then um, that shows them going from uh, trying to going from Egypt into the promised land, uh, the all of the adventures that were required as part of that process, and then you kind of have the the third level down, and that's where you're looking at how that story is unfolding in the individual stories. That's just what you would would uh, lay out there, and that's where we get to the flannel graph versions, the individual stories, individual stories. So that's, uh, I don't know if you grew up in flannel graph yes. environments. They were using them this morning. Children. Were they? Yes. Old school. I like it. Yeah, I, I like it. no school like the old school, right? So that's where you got your, your flannel graph Joseph and his coat of many colors story, or your, here's the story of Moses parting the Red Sea, or here's Samuel being called as the prophet, or here's King David, etc., etc. And those are all those individual stories. So now look at it back in reverse. Now that you've seen these three layers, look at it from C going back up to A. We all think about these Old Testament stories as these individual stories, and that's, that is important to recognize them as such. But that's telling a bigger story of what God is doing with the people of Israel in the Old Testament narrative. And that's telling an even grander story about how God is redeeming mankind through his choices, his choice of the people of Israel and his choice to reveal himself in Jesus. That's kind of how those three levels of narrative work, especially in the Old Testament. And we see in there, in this point three, as we start to break it down, there are certain things that we want to start to just kind of recognize as we familiarize ourselves with the exegetical process of the Hebrew narratives. So point A here, we, uh, in, in all of these stories, we'll bump into a narrator. Um, we don't always know who the narrator is, but that narrator is providing the point of view. The point of view. And, and think about these things as we start to kind of go through these process. Think about these things uh, in relationship to maybe what you learned in your English classes growing up in school. That sometimes your narrator is your hero of your story, right? Um, if you think about... Um, Think about, it's Huck Finn, right? I think Huck is his, his own narrator as he's telling his story. And there are other stories that are like that. And I, that one only popped into mind because I'm reading Tom Sawyer to my sons right now, which I'm kind of feeling like was a mistake. But nonetheless, I'm trying to read Tom Sawyer to my sons. Um, and Tom, Tom is not his own narrator. Uh, there's, a, there's another narrator. Um, and so it, in the biblical narrative, it becomes important for you to understand who's your narrator telling the story. Um, B, point B, you, get, uh, you will get a scene which will focus on the character development. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, 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 back up. It will focus less on the character development. I'm sorry, I shortened your version. Um, it focuses less on the character development. Instead, focuses on the development of the story you'll find that this is a focus on the development of the story. So uh, I don't know how deep you've gotten into literature, whether or not you like reading classic literature or modern literature, whether you like reading at all, um, but some of the classic books um, in literature are known to be classics because of their development of the characters and they, they tell the, the human drama. Whereas um, in Hebrew narrative, a lot more of the focus is on the development of the story, the flow of the story. You don't get um, these uh, internal dialogues of the characters or these internal wrestlings or things of that nature. Instead, they're going to focus, this is now getting down into point C, how do we learn about the characters? They are characterized by words, actions, and roles. Words, actions, and roles. We learn about these characters by how they talk to people. We worry, or we learn about these characters by how they act with other people. 
We learn about these characters because of their relationship to others, right? We were talking, we try to debrief with our sons on the way home from Sunday school. What did you learn about today? Um, and yeah, it never really goes well. But, <laughs> well, one of, my, one of my sons is kind of a specialized expert at at least getting the content of information. He doesn't always like drive it down into his heart, but he's seven. So we, you know, we're building on steps, but um, you know, and so I was able to talk about um, the, the, the reason why David was an unexpected king in relationship to his brothers, right? We get this story of how weird it was that David was selected king when all of his other brothers were bigger than him, stronger than him, better looking than him, and older than him. In that culture, it was significant that we then pick out this little morsel of a story where we learn that man may look on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And I was, you know, we're able to use that as kind of that debriefing concept. It was really interesting because in the opening ceremony, the opening part of the day, uh, Susan was really driving home that Saul was picked because he was tall, dark and handsome mm -hmm. head and shoulders above everybody else in the crowd mm -hmm. and you know that's kind of how he got picked and yeah. David becomes this little ruddy guy that looks like Opie Taylor basically vote, voted least likely to succeed <laughs> yeah. in his high school yearbook so yeah and, and so but we don't get to learn about those things through the narrator saying and David was this and then David was this and then David was this instead we learn about it as the flow and the development of the story reveals these details to us it's kind of unique about Hebrew narrative. Um, as a result, I don't have to then cover this hu hugely, but this is a reiteration of point D, that dialogue is often a key factor. The conversations that we do get are going to be significant because the point is really to keep the story moving. Keep the story moving and move it quickly, sometimes so quickly that we miss a lot of details. So if we do pause for a moment, and start seeing some dialogue in between characters, that's significant. That's something that's meant to be teaching us something about that character, something about the flow of the story, something that we need to be seeing as the reader. Finally, um, I've just said this, but let's drive it home. Point E, plot and story, they are told quickly. They are told quickly. So as a result, when it comes to us trying to understand the exegetical process for Old Testament narrative, our key discipline is to slow down. The story is going to be ramrodded into your face and you're going to go from moment to moment to moment. And in between sentences, sometimes you'll be covering hundreds of years in between sentences. So the, the things that are that are paused on and focused on by the narrator, you have to slow yourself down and say, why this part? Why here? Why now? Jesse's been doing a good, good job of this as he's been covering Ruth. Ruth is Old Testament narrative, right? We're talking about a story, a Hebrew story that tells the people of Israel, and he's pulling out some of these things for us that through your exegetical process, you would notice too, as you, for instance, if you picked up the book of Ruth and you started to read it over and over and over again, one tidbit by, that Jesse pointed out today in his message is that it keeps referring to Ruth once she showed up in, in Israel and was living in Israel. It keeps referring to Ruth as the Moabite woman, the Moabite woman, Ruth, the Moabite woman. Why do we keep seeing this over and over and over again? Because it's drawing this tension. The narrator's not stopping for us and telling us that this is a significant problem. Not stopping and reminding us, hey, remember the Old Testament laws that would talk about how you're supposed to disdain the outsider and stay away from the outsider? Definitely don't marry an outsider. To continue to point to her as this was, was one of the indications that the narrator is wanting you to see. So you have to slow down when you're going through that exegetical process. We'll talk more about the exegetical process when we get to Acts, just by way of reminder um, in terms of what that looks like. But let's dive in for a moment into hermeneutics in the narratives. Um, we have to notice this, that narratives, this is your little dash point under point four, narratives are history. Narratives are history. They are not fables. And I use that word um, precisely. Do you remember Aesop's fables? Those are the, probably the most famous fables. How would you describe to me 
since we're a small enough group, we could probably have this conversation without getting too out of control, one would hope. <laughs> I just had to pick somebody to look at when I said this sentence. <laughs> I'm sorry. What, what's a fable? What do, what do we pick up from there? We just watched Aladdin last night. Okay. It's awesome. So a magic carpet, lamp, genie. Okay. Those that would probably fall under the fable. So you get a story, but there's something specific that you get with the story. Moral. There's always a moral to the story, right? And we get that line. Be, don't be greedy and be, yeah. Yeah, so Aladdin's got its, its story, right? Be yourself. One of Disney's favorite stories to tell. Be yourself. And they tell that story over and over and over and over again. But nonetheless, they are, it's a story with a moral. You can look at it and go, I, this is the point that I'm supposed to be able to pull out from this. There's nothing wrong with, with fables. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with fables. But that's not what the Old Testament is. Unless... What the moral that you're wanting to point out is to point up to that meta-narrative. And we're looking at this shows us the redemptive history of God redeeming mankind, bringing mankind back to himself. But when we look at these Old Testament stories, they're not being written out so that we can then read that story and go, well, well then what was the moral to that story? Sometimes they're just being written down because that was what was important for Israel to know. That was what is important for the flow of of Israel going through time for them to, to document their history. So as a result, I want to give you, a little tongue-in-cheek, the Ten Commandments of interpreting Old Testament narrative. The Ten Commandments of, Old, of interpreting Old Testament narrative. Here are just ten interpretational rules that I want you to hold on to when you start going through Old Testament and trying to study it for yourself. Number one, the stories are not written to teach a doctrine. The stories are not written to teach a doctrine. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't learn something. That doesn't mean that we, that we can't see ourselves in these stories from it time to time. The doctrine's not in them. And we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. But notice that the primary purpose is not to teach a doctrine. Okay? Now, these, these Ten Commandments are not like cleanly separated from one another. You'll see that there's kind of a relationship between them all. So as Wayne's pointing out, let's, let's go on. Doctrines that would be, I think I just left this in its entirety because they're, it's a little fancy. Doctrines that would be extracted from the stories are explained as doctrines elsewhere. So this is what I mean by this. Can we learn something from Old Testament narrative? Absolutely. Can there be a moral to the story? Absolutely. What I'm telling you is that if you want to try to pull out a moral to that story, and you want to point to that as this is something important that God would have us learn from this story, I can guarantee you that God has taught us that moral somewhere else in Scripture as well, such that we could back it up. And we'll, we'll work with that when we get to Acts, because I'll explain a little bit more why, because this is going to be an important principle for interpreting Acts as well. But the point is, the Old Testament stories were not written to tell that moral. However, that moral may display itself, and you'll find that doctrine somewhere else in Scripture. Does that make sense? The reason why I'm spending so much time differentiating this, and I'm going to say it probably another three or four times before we leave these Ten Commandments, is that if you find yourself pulling out a lesson that only exists in an Old Testament story, you're on really shaky ground to say that this is the moral on which we stand. This is the lesson that we learn from this. And the only place that we can learn it is by your extraction of the moral to the story in whatever that case may be. That becomes really problematic when you start building, those, uh, building lessons on those stories and that doctrine is not taught anywhere else in Scripture. And I say this, I don't know what your church background is like, but there are plenty of churches throughout, this, throughout the globe that are teaching people what they ought to do, what they should be doing, based off of Old Testament stories. And we'll use a couple of examples to kind of see where that can be a problem. And very okay? isolated many times. Yes. Very isolated. So, to drive this home even further, you've heard me say this line before if you've come to one of the other weeks. I think all of you have been here at one point or another. Point three. Narratives are descriptive, not prescriptive. Narratives are descriptive, not prescriptive. 
And then I further explain what I mean by that in the line underneath. <laughs> they record what happened. They record what happened, not what ought to have happened. <laughs> okay? So I think there are certain ways in which we can see this, and it's very obvious, right? Um, let's, let's take phenomenal failures for 600, Alex. Um, we, yeah, we all, know, we all know that King David, in all of his glory and greatness, decided to commit adultery with a woman and kill her husband in order to cover up his sin. I don't think anybody struggles with looking at that story and going, and thus, what we ought to do is do, do, go and do likewise, right? We, we don't get that. We don't see that at all. But for whatever reason, we start, to, we start to deviate from that concept when we look at some of the other stories, and we, realize, and we, we don't realize where the rules are. And instead, let me give you this simple rule to work with. These Old Testament narratives are describing what happened, not what ought to have happened. It's just telling you what went down, right? It becomes a little bit more confusing when you start looking, especially if you start looking at these stories in Judges. I don't, I, for whatever reason, I was crazy at one point. I actually really enjoyed it, but I, I just went out on a limb and I went through the book of Judges with a college group one time for like six months. And there's all kinds of stories in the book of Judges that are not explained to you in such a way that would cause you to believe, hey, dummy, it shouldn't have been this way. But instead, um, it's just, it writes out these stories. Now, that doesn't mean we can't learn from it, but it's telling us what happened, not what ought to have happened, okay? Let's, uh, so the rest of these rules, will kind of unpack these in different ways, but so... As a result, you get point four. Don't assume that the Hebrew story tells you what you should do, right? So you, th that should be pretty clear. At this point, when you look in the Old Testament narrative and you read these things, the reason why my David example was a bad one is that in the story a little bit later, somebody pops up on the scene, right? Nathan pops up on the scene and goes, hey, David, you ought not to have done that. That's nice for us as a reader. We're like, oh, okay, I shouldn't go cheat on, cheat, kill a man so that I can have his wife, right? But you don't always get that. And, and that's okay because we're just looking at what happened, not what should have happened. Point five, or commandment five, I should say. Old Testament narrative shows imperfections. And if you don't get this point, then all of the stuff that I've just said to you before doesn't make any sense. But it's not a big deal for us to admit that when we look at these biblical heroes, quote-unquote, all of them fell short of the glory of God, which is not a very difficult doctrine to support because we have that directly stated, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul told us that directly in the book of Romans. We see that in the Old Testament characters. We see them in their glories, and we see them in the dumpster. We see them do things great and we see them in their drunken stupidity and we see all of these things intermingled and so we need to then be free to recognize that in seeing these stories that doesn't tell us that we should be the same way the stories just tell us what happened okay all right so then verse six i'm sorry verse six <laughs> step six i'm getting i'm thinking really highly of my own notes here <laughs> uh don't look to the narrator to tell you whether or not you should approve or disapprove. Now, some of this stuff is easier, right? But some of this stuff, um, and my point is this, I'll just get straight to it, that for the Hebrew, the, it would often be easier for you to know whether or not this was an approval or would be an approval or disapproval situation. For us reading these things, sometimes six, 7,000 years after uh, we don't necessarily have the cultural mindset in which they would be approving or disapproving of these things. And so sometimes it takes us a little bit more study to try to understand, is this a cultural problem? Is this not a cultural problem, right? Um, I love, even though we'll have another night talking about the law, but just as like a drastic example, um, you, know, you get this section of law in Leviticus saying that you ought not boil a a kid goat in its mother's milk and make sure that you don't uh, be weaving two different kinds of fabric together, right? And you look at this law and you're like, 
I don't understand at all why this would be a problem. Do I need to get rid of my polycotton blend and make, you know, make sure that I'm not eating the no more veal or whatever the case is? But uh, the, the narrator in Old Testament narrative, similarly, is not going to tell you whether or not you should approve or disapprove the action. You talked about one of the places in Judges, and there's one general that says, Lord, if you give me victory in the battle, the first thing that wiggles, walks, or crawls that I see when I get home, I'll sacrifice I'll you. I'll sacrifice to you. Yeah, it doesn't go so well for him. Yeah. What pops out of his tent his first? Daughter. Yeah, his daughter is oh. the first thing that walks out. Yeah. And what does he do? He sacrifices his daughter, right? And we get no description of, hey, this was a stupid vow, or hey, he should have followed through on his... We don't get any, no. any lessons, and the moral of the story is none of that type of thing. We just... This is exactly what happened. Um, if, uh, Your vow's through. Well, there's definitely, yeah, you know, there's, there's good advice there. Uh, point seven, we don't get all the details, just the ones that are relevant to God's story. Sometimes, and this was a, a concept that was very difficult for me to deal with the whole of Scripture, um, especially when I was a younger man, that there are things inside Scripture that allude to certain principles, but then don't give me more details. And I often find myself wanting more of those details. As I'm starting to get older, I'm starting to be a little bit more at peace with that for whatever reason, probably just the grace of God. But we need to remember that God has only told us that which probably we were capable of understanding to begin with. And then number two, that which was necessary to communicate to us for his purposes, that meta-narrative purpose. I think the one thing we understand the older we get is this is not an exhaustive book. It's not. It doesn't not tell us everything. Yeah, that was my question two weeks ago. Like, who, like how did this... Who chose what went in there? Yeah, so what what entails what is Scripture and what makes Scripture Scripture? But I think the the point is that we wanted to to lay out for this purpose here is that um, God has not necessarily given us all of the details of every single one of these stories, right? We sometimes, we even have direct verses saying, hey, there's more to this story, but we're not going to tell it now. Um, But it's important to recognize that we don't always have all the details. Um, So point eight, this should just kind of be a reiteration here. Narratives alone cannot answer our theological questions. They show us God in action. They show us God in action, right? So one of the most common um, arguments that I hear lodged against um, our our understanding of who God is uh, and all loving God um, is a God that decimates entire cultures and says, I want you to not only kill them, I want you to kill all their children, I want you to kill all their animals, I want you to burn their cities to the ground. And people will have, people have difficulty with that, theologically speaking, trying to understand a good God that would command that of his people. What is today's lesson? <laughs> what, was it? Well, part of it. Yeah. Okay. Oh, with the with in the Sunday school lesson. Okay, got it. I was like, I don't remember that in Ruth at all. I'm sorry. No, that's all right. I should have gone to Sunday school. Yeah, but but the point is that I'm trying to make there is that that it doesn't explain for us why God did what He did or why He commanded what He did. Sometimes it just tells us. Actually, a lot of the times it just tells us this is what God did. This is what God commanded. This is what occurred. And it, it is sometimes left for us to try to figure out what was the story behind this. And we don't always have those answers. Refer back to point seven. We don't always get all those details. Um, point nine, then, another way of saying that is that some information is subtle. But as I've pointed out to you, often that subtle information may be the most important information. Little repeated phrases Little things that maybe are said multiple times, but then you get to a moment and it's no longer repeated. Sometimes those subtleties uh, are the things that are the most uh, important thing to understand, right? Jesse is pointing out a really, um, a, a really good one in the book of Ruth where he keeps referring to that it says that by chance, Ruth happened to chance upon Boaz, right? And, and it's this very subtle point where you might be reading it and completely miss it, but the way in which that wording is stated there indicates a much bigger theological point uh, that is important to kind of draw out. And you know, as he came to an end today, 
He drew four subtleties out of one verse. Mm -hmm. And I just, that just thrilled me. And you picked. And I watched people in the audience respond to that. It's like, really? <laughs> and they were, they were, their eyes were back on the page. Yeah. And you, and you pick that up by, remember uh, when we talked about point three E, you pick that up by going slow. You have to go slow as you go through it. Now that doesn't mean don't read it to get the whole picture. You got to get that too. You got to start by reading it fast to get that whole picture. But when it comes time to actually study each individual section, you got to really slow down to start to see those things. Remember point 10 to kind of finish up this concept. Point 10, remember that the main character is always Yahweh. It's always the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is always the story of God. Even though it may appear that it's an individualized story of Joseph and his coat or Saul and his king, uh, kingly actions, it's always the story of what God is doing behind that meta narrative is always there in the background. Okay, so that's what we'll say about Old Testament narrative. Now, I threw in as kind of bonus prizes going over the section of Acts. And here's why. Because when it comes to Acts, essentially the exegetical process is the same. And I would even argue that the hermeneutical process is the same because essentially it is the story of the people of God. It's still the story of the people of God. It's still that meta-narrative of the redemptive story. There, the twist, though, is on the second level versus our Old Testament narrative. No, we're no longer telling the story of Israel, but we're telling the story of God's people in the church and how the church is spreading. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But what I'm going to argue to you when it comes to the study of Acts is that most of the principles are the same. We just need to slow ourselves down. Um, and, and think about the way that we think about Acts. Here's where, let's jump into it. The, the key problem that I want to just identify, and we haven't used an example yet, so we'll kind of jump into it for a second. Um, the key problem is that because Acts is the story of the spread of Christianity, people start applying different interpretational principles. For whatever reason, they'll read Old Testament narrative and think that the interpretational process is different because that was with Israel. But when it comes to the church, the, interpreta the interpretation of Acts ought to be different because this is telling, telling the story of the church. I would argue that's not really the same. Let's look for an example. I used Judges for a second, a second ago. Um, but if you look at um, Judges, and we don't have to read the whole story, but are you familiar with the story of, of Gideon's fleece? In, uh, in Judges 6, um, let me, uh, yeah, let me, let me see so that it doesn't, uh, try to narrow this down, because I think I was just going to talk about it in general. So, So in, in Judges 6, picking it up in 36, just so that we can read some text together, um, it says this, Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you've said, behold, I'm laying out a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on all the ground, and then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you've said. And it was so. So do you see how quickly that story turned around there? We've got to slow it down. We just, we had a whole night go by with three words, and it was so. So that's the way that it ended up happening. So we've got to slow down. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground, let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. A lot of people will look at that story. So I, I've heard this before, right? I'm going to lay out my fleece before God. And people will use this as a guide 
for this is how I should interact with God. This is how I should determine God's will. Here's the problem. Now that you know a little bit about Old Testament narrative, does this tell us what we should be doing or what was done? What was done? It just tells us what was done, right? And here's the even bigger problem if you understand the bigger story of what's occurring in the Old Testament is that God had already specifically told him, hey, Gideon, here's what I'm going to do. And this story shows us Gideon not, not trying to figure out God's will. God had already plainly told him what his will was. This shows us Gideon's doubt of God. That's exactly what it shows us. And yet I will see people sometimes go, well, I got to lay out my fleece before God to figure out what God wants me to do. You can do whatever it is you darn well please, but don't base it on this passage because I guarantee you Gideon would show up if he could knock on your skull and go, hey, don't be like me. I was dumb. That was not my, my shining moment of Old Testament story, right? This, this was not the example that I want you to follow. Now, it might be a little bit easier to do that type of thing. We get that example, right? But then if you pop over to Acts 4, so it might be easier for you to go, okay, well, maybe we shouldn't be like Gideon. But then we we start reading things about the New Testament church, and we go to Acts 4, right? And we... uh, We read a passage like this. Let's start in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Lord Jesus and the great grace was was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Let's just stop there. I'm not saying that I have a problem (laughs) with it, but but let's just be, let's call a spade a spade. I've heard people try to argue that this is not some description of Christian communism, but ultimately it is. I don't have a problem with communism. I just have a problem with people because people can't pull off communism, right? That's, That's the problem with communism. Now, here's the point. Here's why I'm bringing this up. This is not a political lecture in any way, shape, or form. But the the point that I'm trying to bring up is that I will then hear people, because this is the story of the early church, tell us, and this is what we ought to do too. My argument to you would be our interpretational principles for this passage are the same as Gideon's fleece. We're looking at this as a description of what occurred. It's not telling us what we ought to do. It's telling us what was done. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. It's not prescribing for us like a doctor would, would write you a prescription. Hey, here's what you should do. It's describing for us what was done. But this was something that was tried again and again during the Jesus movement. I was, that was before my time. Last Did it go very well? Last day's ministries mm-hmm. was this. Art Katz's Ben Israel ministries was this. And, and I would argue for you that if it could work, I don't have a problem with it. I'm not saying that, I'm not trying to make the argument that one, that we should do this or shouldn't do this. My argument is the next layer up. I want us to, I want us to always be cautious of building a universal principle of what a church should be like or what a Christian should be like off of the description that we find in the book of Acts. Okay, does that make sense? Yes? No? Maybe so? I love the furrowedness of your brow. Can we talk about that? <laughs> I was just a little confused. I thought that that was the view we were taking with the Old Testament as having to be historical um, stories of what's happening during the time, not of things that we ought to do. So when I see Acts in... Um, in the New Testament, when I see the New Testament as getting more doctrine, things that we should be doing. So I'm not doing that? I, uh, in Acts? Or no, you're, you're exactly, yeah, you're exactly exemplifying what I'm saying that I, I think is very dangerous. I would argue 
My argument is that, no, you should not be doing that. That just because you had that one page in your Bible that flipped from Old Testament over to New Testament, that when we get to a narrative section, that that's automatically telling us that we should be doing it just because it's in the New Testament. And so the book of Acts, which I haven't is a narrative story. It is. It's a story of yeah. the apostles. The whole thing is the narrative. It's, oh, a, it's about the spread of the church. So the, the key distinction is that in the Old Testament, the narratives are about the spread of Israel and the story of Israel. The book of Acts takes that story of Israel, and even if you read the beginning of Acts, there's a lot initially of record of sermons that are given by early church members and they tell those sermons starting it by talking about the development of Israel and how that brought itself to the revelation of God and Jesus. And as a result of that, we then get the spread of the church in the story of Acts. And so that's, that's the point I'm trying to make to you is that the interpretational principles are the same from Old Testament narrative and New Testament. Now, those rules then end up being the same, and we'll get there in a second, but I'm kind of belaboring the point as a result to tell you that I want to see the rules as the same between both sections. So, as a result, the point one here, the exegesis is going to be similar. Um, We want to go through the same process that we would of understanding the Old Testament books. We want to understand Acts in the same way. We want to know the author. And because Luke is the only New Testament narrative book um, in the way that I'm going to divide it up, um, we can go ahead and and dive in a little bit more specifically into the book of Acts just by way of example. Who's the author of the book of Acts? Does anybody know? And if you don't know, you could go to Acts 1-1. Oh, do you know? No, I'm pretty... Luke! Luke! Luke, who's, and so when we're going to go through the exegetical process, wouldn't it be helpful to maybe pull out the Bible dictionary or the notes that you got, if you got the study Bible or whatever the case is, and figure out who's this Luke guy? Who is this guy? What's he, what's he all about? Where's he coming from? Is Luke a, a Jew or a Gentile? Where did he get his information? Um, all of that type of thing becomes relevant to trying to understand the book of Acts. Same thing. So this is the same way that we did with the epistles. This would be the same way that we would do with the Old Testament. Um, We then point B, we want to know who are the recipients, right? Luke tells us directly who he's writing to. The most excellent uh, Theophilus, right? And it's, it's the same guy to whom Luke wrote his gospel of Luke. So Luke is, Luke has a purpose. He makes it pretty plain what his purpose is, is writing this down. But understanding who he's writing to helps us understand a little bit more about uh, how the book of Acts is going to be structured. And ultimately, let me just drive home this point, that it's significant that Luke is writing to a Gentile. Luke is writing the book of the Acts of the Apostles, the spread of the church. He's writing it to a Gentile. He's telling the spread of the church to Gentiles. And the reason why is because if you then look at the flow of the book of Acts, I know I'm kind of giving away a lot of the stuff that you would find when you would study on your own, but the reason why is that as you look at the flow of the book of Acts, you realize that it starts with talking about how God was using the church from within Judaism, and then it transitions to the flow to the rest of the Gentile slash Roman world at that time. And that's why it's significant to see that he's writing to a Gentile. He's showing that Gentile that his story began in Judaism, but then spread to him. Another thing, one of the little tiny tidbits and acts that I love is uh, the first two thirds are written in third person. The last third is written in first person. We start, All of a sudden he's on the scene. We got on the Starts show. using word, yeah, first person pronouns. We, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's... That's significant, right? When we start looking at narrator concepts, that's stuff that we don't really see um, in other sections of Scripture. So then C, and we're, we're already kind of revealing some of this stuff as we go along, but we want to know the content. So just like we would do the exegetical process in other books, we want to read it all the way through. We want to read it multiple times, get familiar with the flow, and learn relationship of the parts um, to one another. Why is this part here? Why is this story here? What, what goes on? What's the transition that's occurring? 
I really liked, um, and I keep alluding to the fact that a lot of the structure of what we're talking about is coming from this book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. There's a lot of different people that will um, kind of structure Luke in different ways, but I wrote out something that I thought was a particularly astute observation that they make, is these key summary statements that pop up in the book of Luke. I wrote the verses down for you as they've listed them there, because essentially this is talking about, we've already told you, the movement of the Jewish church to the Gentile church. And those key transition phrases kind of show you, almost think of them as, uh, as chapters, right? Because you, uh, maybe you don't know that, but you know that the, there's nothing inspired or God ordained by the chapters as they're written out. It's not that God wrote down his uh, and handed down his revelation with chapter and verse numbers associated with each of the, the you, I don't know if you, if you did or did not know that, but that was, that came much later for somebody, uh, or because the church was trying to make it easier for people to be able to reference their texts. But um, when we look at trying to understand the flow of Luke, Luke is kind of broken better up into sections by these kind of summary statements. Um, I'm sorry, Acts, as written by Luke. So Luke is breaking up his section uh, or breaking up his writing kind of into these sections. So I'm giving you kind of a heads up um, when you then dive into Acts, you can kind of look for those. All right, so that then, um, did we, and then I don't know if I made this clear enough, but point three, that that was the movement from Jewish to Gentile. That's ultimately the main, the main thrust of the book of Acts. So, let's talk about some hermeneutical principles, and a lot of this is going to be restatement based off of what I spent a lot of time talking about initially when I opened up the book of Acts. Um, Point A, Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. Just like the Old Testament narrative, it does not tell us what things must be, but instead how things were. It's not telling us how things ought to be, it's telling us the way that things went. Oh, man. How do we just... You know, Sandy and I spent the first years of our Christian experience within Pentecostal and Charismatic mm-hmm. schools. Which has a tendency, I don't want to make an overgeneralization, no, but Pentecostal churches have a tendency to use narrative sections to then support doctrines. Yeah, and to say, this happens because it happened here. Right. So it's got to happen here. Right. That's huge. And it, it, be, it becomes problematic. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that... Pentecostals are always wrong. I'm not saying that no, at all. I, I understand. What but you're yeah, I, I I become leery of that, and we we need to kind of stick to these more reliable rules. That um, and I'm kind of jumping ahead, but point C here, and then we'll go back. Doctrines that would be extracted from the stories are going to be explained as doctrines elsewhere. And I'll show you what I mean by that when we get back there. But let's go back to point. Uh, so we got point A, Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. And hopefully you all know what I mean by those words by this point, because we're, you know, we're starting to, I'm starting to beat that dead horse. Now, note, this doesn't mean, and I just wrote this out word for word here. This doesn't mean that we can't model ourselves after the events or characters in Acts. It just means it isn't a necessity. Now this goes back to, let's pick my Christian communism point. This goes back to that. I I have no theological problem whatsoever with some type of successful Christian commune. I I don't. Um, Granted that that commune somehow still be outreaching and not just simply inreaching. But if, if our church suddenly decided that we are going to, every single one of our members is going to sell everything, and we're doing this voluntarily, key component, doing it voluntarily. Everybody decides we're going to sell everything that we have, throw it into one big pot, and then our church leadership is going to distribute it, and everybody's getting served, and everybody's, everybody's happy, and, and you're at a church that does that? Fine. Great. I got no problems with that whatsoever. Theologically. Right? Practically is where I end up going, I'm not so sure that's a great idea, right? Because I'm not sure if you're aware, but just because someone's a Christian doesn't necessarily mean that that makes them good with distributing finances. Doesn't mean, yeah, or that they don't have a greed problem. Um, I also would have significant problems with a 
um, with a church where the leader says, okay, this isn't an option. If you're going to be a part of this church, you're going to sell everything and you're going to put it in this box. And it's going to be my job to distribute everything from that box. It's no longer a voluntary thing, right? So now we've got almost a totalitarian situation that's going on there. And they could try to base that off of the book of Acts. See, because they did that here, it's in the Bible. That tells us that that's something that we should be doing there. And the person that has learned how to interpret scripture and handle it correctly, hopefully should have some red flags going up. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Not only do I have a problem with this practically, and I'm not so sure that I like the idea that you're forcing me to do this. I also have a problem with how you're using scripture here to try to support your points by pointing to a story of what happened, telling me that that's something that I need to be doing as well. That's the danger that we got to watch out for. There's lots of different ways that people have done this through the years. And a lot of the times they end up forming cults around them. Um, so just that's why I'm so passionate about trying to learn these rules and trying to adhere to them, because I think that it helps us safely interpret scripture and evaluate the way that other people do as well. Now, that being said, there is still something to be said about point B, historical precedent. It's, which is a powerful decision maker in our culture. Um, we, you know, I, I spend my day job, so to speak, um, working in, a, in the justice system, which is heavily dependent upon historical precedent, right? When somebody goes to the appellate courts and they want to try to say that the original ruling that happened in my first trial was wrong because of this way, shape, or form, the first thing that those judges will do is they will look at the, the catalog, and these are significant collections of court cases in the past, and go, how have other judges ruled on issues like this in the time, and try to apply, either find those circumstances, or find multiple sets of circumstances that are similar in order to then help them make their decision. Historical precedent is a huge component for our culture. Why is this relevant? I wanna, I wanna point out to the fact that Acts is the story of the spread of the church. And so there's probably still something to be said about learning from how did the church spread and what was the church like when it was spreading and what things occurred and what things didn't occur. This is the first church, and this is by way of examples, this is the first church I've ever been a part of that has a designated set of people called deacons, okay? I would argue, and I will speak for Wayne and the other leaders, that none of us as the church leaders would stand up and say that if a church does not have deacons, they are wrong. I don't think we would say that. Where do we get that idea of deacons? Why are there churches... Some churches that have a designated body of people called deacons and other churches that don't have a designated body of people. Are, are they in sin? Are they in error? Are they a wrong church and you should all come to our church because it's better? Well, it says in Acts 6 that we had, have you read this story before where deacons came to be? Uh, just, uh, we don't have to read the whole, we don't have to read the whole story, but if you just flip over to Acts 6, you'll see there, um, You'll see there that there was a problem, right? 6-1. In these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that's the, the, uh, the Gentile Christians, it rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Okay, so here we've got this problem, right? The, the Hebrews um, are getting more. Their widows are getting more than the Gentile Hebrews, or the Gentile widows are. And the disciples who at that point are running the church, I'll just kind of go fast forward through the story. They're running the church. They go, look, we need to focus on some things here. The church is exploding and we need to make sure that we keep the main things, the main things. So instead, we're going to designate this group of serpents um, and they choose seven people and they specifically designate them to handle that issue, to make sure that that stuff is being handled. This is where we see the first instance of deacons. Now, as brilliant Bible interpreters, especially of narrative sections, does that tell us that every church as a result should have deacons? No. Say it with confidence. No, no. it just tells us, tells us what happened. Exactly, exactly. And so somebody goes, aha, aha. Well, we, if it's a doctrine that's taught there, maybe it's taught somewhere else. And so we go over to 1 Timothy 3. Now we're going to try to establish that there are deacons, right? 
1 Timothy 3, it says over here, um, Paul is telling Timothy that this is what your church leaders should look like. Uh, Just real quickly, after he gets done talking about overseers or bishops or where we get our idea of elders, Paul then says this in 1 Timothy 3, 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine. And he describes what the deacons ought to be like. What you will not find in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is Paul telling Timothy, hey, and make sure that you got a deacon board too. You won't see it. Instead, you'll see Paul tell you, this is what your deacons should be like. Well, you're going to have a tough time in the Baptist church. (laughs) (laughs) My point is this. And, and this is why I, I guess I've become a little bit more wishy-washy. And, and ironically, I've become more wishy-washy by becoming more black and white. Yeah. Um, I've, been, I've become black and white on how Scripture needs to be interpreted. But as a result, I've become more wishy-washy on things like, should a church have a deacon board? I don't care. But if you got one, I could tell you what it needs to look like. That I've got. I've got that in Scripture. But if you don't want to have one, okay, no big deal. The church had one. Uh, at the, in the story of Acts. That's why they started it. And maybe you have good reasons for having one. Maybe you don't have good reasons for having one. Um, but this gives me all kinds of freedom to, let's say for whatever reason, I was one of these people in the kingdom of God who's like a church fixer and this church is ready to implode and they bring somebody in to start uh, identifying what the issues are. And let's say that the deacon board is the problem, right? Their deacons have gotten way out of control and they're doing all kinds of problematic things. I'd kill the deacon board just boom, right there. Let's kill the deacon. You can't kill the deacon board. We have to, no, there's nothing in scripture that says that I have to have. Now, this is obviously not about deacons, right? I'm just showing for you the way that people sometimes will twist the intent of scripture in order to say things that God didn't necessarily lay out. He doesn't tell us we have to have deacons. He tells us what they ought to look like if you do have them. Historical precedent of what the church did is still an important factor, right? Should we have a deacon board? Should we not? I don't know. There is an argument to be made that maybe it's a decent idea. The church found it to be a decent idea way back in the beginning, and here's why. But that still doesn't say, and thus saith the Lord, thou shalt have a deacon board, right? It doesn't say that. And we need to be very careful about how we use scripture along those lines. So then this kind of enforces just kind of by way of driving it home. And we've said this multiple times, but point C, that the doctrines that we would try to extract from the book of Acts, we would, we would be able to find those explained as doctrines elsewhere. So let me give you an example in the opposite direction. Okay, so I've told you all these things that you can't do and you can't support. But let me give you... A really pivotal example, at least a pivot, it's pivotal to me, and I'll explain why in a moment. <clears throat> in Acts 10, we come across this story. Um, let's start in verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter, who's a Jew, by the way, went up onto the housetop on the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. Okay, stop there. Based on what you know about Jews, do they have rules about what they should eat? Yes. Right? That's where we get the idea of kosher, right? That's they still, still sects of Judaism today that still eat by certain rules. Peter, who is a Jew, he's hungry. He has something to eat. And while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles, and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. So Peter thinks this is a test, right? Peter goes, "Uh Uh-uh, you can't catch me like that. Peter said, By no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once heaven. Now, what's fun about this story is that God was preparing Peter to go talk to a Gentile, which is something that Peter was not used to doing because he was a Jew and Jewish rules were, hey, stick to the Jews, stay away from the dirty Gentiles. Then God was going to take Peter and say, no, 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 
I've got this Gentile I need you to talk to. Significant in the flow of Luke's story. But there's a byproduct here of what's occurring. Peter, who's eaten kosher his entire life, is told by God, hey, you can eat all this non-kosher stuff here. Peter, thinking it's a test, going, no, 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 I'm not going to do it. But God says, no, no, no. If I say that you can do it, you can do it. Now, here's a deal. This morning, in preparation for church, I and my family enjoyed a healthy slab of bacon. Very much a non-kosher thing. Now, maybe you haven't thought about that. Maybe you should think about it. But that's a non-kosher thing. And for me to say that I follow Scripture with every single aspect of my life, I have an inconsistency there if I want to try to establish just from Old Testament law what I should be eating. So do I get to use Peter's vision as an excuse to eat my bacon? It's not prescribed. <laughs> it's, it's not prescribed, right? So that's why, for the boy who really likes bacon, I really get happy when I read a couple other chapters <laughs> in first... <laughs> For, in, for instance, uh, yeah, 1 Corinthians 8.8 8 just so happens to address this issue as well, right? When Paul is trying to face the issue, are we allowed to eat these steaks that were sacrificed to idols? I mean, that's more or less what he's trying to address. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 8.8, 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. <laughs> I'm so tired of being told. Bacon away. <laughs> well, and the point is this, right? And, and uh, actually, let's real quickly look at Colossians. I like how he says it in Colossians. Even, uh, it's even stronger. In Colossians chapter 2, um, verse 16, we see this. Therefore, and maybe you'll like this too. You ought to have a juice cleanse for spiritual purposes. Therefore... <laughs> Let no one, this is 2.16 of Colossians, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Can we look at the story in Acts and tell ourselves that doctrinally, theologically speaking, we're allowed to eat whatever we want? No, we can't do that. But if we wanted to extract from there what was happening and we wanted to establish in some other way, can we look at some other passage of Scripture and support the idea that we no longer have to abide by kosher laws? Yes, we can. I've shown you two other passages indicating that Paul told us, look, guys, we're not pleasing God by how we eat anymore. There are Romans some concepts. Really What's that? Romans 14. And, Matters of conscience. All, and, and what Paul does instead is he shifts the conversation, exactly what you're saying, shifts the conversation about what you're actually eating to why you're eating what you're eating. And it becomes a heart issue instead of the actual, the uh, instead of a bacon a issue. issue. Yeah. <laughs> oh one, of the, one of the places that this shows up too, this, this is so good. Uh, Acts chapter 15, the church council. The church lays down some, some rules for the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. And yet, the rest of the New Testament, they're reiterated again and again and again and again. Though it's a story of a church council, what actually was the edict that came out of that church council pops its head up many more times right. through the rest of the Bible. So the, the point is, and, and we can, by way of summary, indicate this both for Old Testament narrative and the study of Acts, is that the point is to try to tell the flow of God redeeming his people, how he does that in Israel, then how he does that through the church. And there are some great things to pull out from there. It's not that we cannot learn from these, pa these pages of scripture, these wonderful stories. No, we can learn from them. But we must be very careful when we try to then make doctrinal rules based off of the stories alone. And the way that we protect ourselves from that is if we try to pull out a doctrinal rule from one of these texts and we want to say that this is universal for everyone, you got to find it somewhere else in Scripture. you got to find it some other place where it's specifically stated, and thus this is the way that it needs to be. 
that's the way that we protect ourselves and make sure that those rules are there. Could we say then it's, it's established on the testimony of two or three witnesses, you know? We the, could say that if you witness, wanted to get all Old Testament no, about the, it. The witness appears again and again. Yeah, yeah. If it's, a, if it's a crucial, if it's a moral of the story type of point, you're going to find that idea reflected in other areas of Scripture where it will make it very clear that this is one of God's priorities. So, that being said, that is, uh, that's how I wanted to cover Old Testament narrative and Acts. I, I did make a distinction between the, the narrative that you find in Acts and the narrative that you find in the Gospels. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe that will be what we cover next week, is how the Gospels are unique in their narrative structure and what that really means. Where what is it, the, kind of the key idea is now here we have a narrative of our teacher, the teacher upon whom we as Christians base our life, describing for us what that teacher is teaching. That changes the whole nature of what we're reading on those pages. And that's what we'll discuss next week. Questions, problems, concerns, bribes? Bribes. <laughs> that's what my ninth grade biology teacher would say. He'd always say it in that order. Questions? I thought Acts was, was I understanding incorrectly, Acts was the only narrative in the New Testament? In the way, the in the way that I'm breaking it up. Okay. So let's say that it's the only narrative of the New Testament that doesn't contain Jesus teaching people. So as a result, it, it's much more of a story of the flow. Whereas in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, mm-hmm. it's co-mingled with the story of what's going on with Jesus and the things that Jesus is actually saying which changes the whole ballgame of what we're doing with the text. So Acts is the only New, New Testament book where Jesus isn't teaching. Correct. Correct. With, with minor exception, right? Because the beginning of Acts, I'm sorry, but the beginning of Acts does start with the Great Commission. So technically speaking, Jesus does make an appearance at the very beginning of the book of Acts. But generally speaking, that's not what you'll find in Acts is Jesus teaching. Sorry, like I said, because I'm more black and white, I've become more wishy-washy. <laughs> Good questions. Anything else? Well, then, great. Thank you for coming here on your Memorial Day Sunday evening. I hope that you have a good day of remembrance tomorrow um, and enjoy the, the freedom that we have to... I mean, it's, it's such a blessing to... Eat bacon. Well, yes, to eat bacon. <laughs> to eat bacon. Bacon is wonderful. But, uh, you know, to be able to study Scripture and even be able to spend so much time with Scripture that we can study about how to study Scripture and not have to worry about people kicking in the door with guns and taking us all to jail for it. And I, that's a, that is a right and a privilege that has um, been borne on the backs of many that have come before us. So I'm grateful for it. hope that you get to enjoy that a little bit tomorrow as well. All right. Blessings on you.